Hell yeah. Yeah. I do think it's very funny the people who have been uh, doing anti-strike stuff in regards to the train, like the train strike, because they're like, "Oh, everybody's so sad that they can't do their favorite things, and like these workers are, are you know they ha- they're out on strike, but for what reason? At what? Wait, what is it? Yeah, yeah. At what cost? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they, it, I mean, it's been very funny to see the repeated clips that i've been seeing show up on twitter of like different british right-wing media try and interview people on the street and try and catch them in like uh we're gonna get this person to condemn the railway strike and then just have them be (laughs) like yeah actually i fully support the strikers good for them they are fighting for the working class and i think what they're doing is great and then they're like oh no shit yeah (laughs) i I saw the interview (laughs) I, I saw a big outpouring of uh, of support for them as well on Twitter, where like lots of English and and other accounts have been posting like, yeah, I can't get where I need to go today, but I have a reason to take a day off work now, and I get to support <laughs> the strike. Hell you know? yeah! And it's yeah. like fuck yeah, you know. Well, because like Ironard, uh, like you know, in our Discord, posted that this tweet from the BBC where they're like. here's the stories of all these people who have to miss life events because of the strike. It's just like, man, fuck you, BBC. Yeah. (laughs) Yo, I want to stop missing life events because the U.S. won't fucking deal with COVID. Yeah, or just like... (laughs) I mean, this is basically what I was posted in there, but it's just like, what about the workers who are the 2,500 workers who are set to be fired? What about all the life events that they're going to miss because of that? What about like the workers who miss life events because their pay is so shit that they have to be at work every like free hour that they have of of their day? Like this insanely slanted coverage. Like, I, I mean, people have been pointing out, maybe it's good because like the BBC just being openly anti-working class is like I perhaps a bit better than them you know being a bit more subtle about it and where people might be a bit confused on what their actual class stance is well I mean uh, speaking of confused about class stance I'm gonna bring up something that's not in our notes at all uh (laughs) but did you see the daily mail article going around about um UK builders go woke. Yes. Study finds three quarters of tradesmen discuss their feelings with colleagues, <laughs> while two thirds shun the fried breakfasts, and nearly half say they are history buffs. I don't know. I don't know how being a history what? buff yeah. is woke. No, <laughs> but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know plenty of fucking reactionary people who consider themselves history buffs. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it, I would say at least in the U.S. that a v- majority of self-described quote quote history buffs are almost certainly reactionary <laughs> yeah i i don't describe myself as a history buff i just have to learn it to be you know educated on certain topics uh i actually almost would not want to identify as a history buff just because of all of the fucking reactionaries i'm just like yeah yeah i mean I read the history. I know that, you know, it's the workers who struggled for this and that, you know, capitalism inevitably moves towards fascism in crisis. And, you know, I mean, well, and then people are like, no, you don't know history. Did you know that communism, <laughs> Vuvuzela, five million thousand? <laughs> well, it's just funny because we on this show, we talk a lot about like stereotypes of the American industrial worker because that's what we tend to be the most closely acquainted with. 
And that's like the image of a worker that uh, tends to throw the most wrenches into the gears of, of actually working on labor projects, because by and large, that's not what the average American worker looks like anymore. But to right. see it this way, where they're like, you know, the typical British working man, he, he hates his feelings, loves fraud <laughs> breakfast, and hates history, can't stand it, <laughs> simple as. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, I think a big part of the problem problem with this like a, a huge portion of it is that this is the daily mail it's like one of the sure. most like craven insane pieces of the already insane british press like as a whole but like also i think a big part of this is their attempt to like copy paste cultural terminology from the u.s into mm -hmm. britain because like the whole obsession with calling anything that you don't like if you're a reactionary as quote-unquote woke is i'm pretty sure a largely american thing that i don't <laughs> think is really an organic like cultural thing over in england so it yeah. feels like they're just like trying they're like forcing it and they don't quite understand the way that like people like to say tucker carlson over here are using it the funniest thing about wokeness is that uh when i when i think that the first time i heard it was like 2014 like sure. when, when I I think I was still listening to like the Young Turks back then or something like that, and they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I I'm woke." They were like, being being like, "Hey, that's a good thing." And like now, when no one else is using it, suddenly the right wing is just like, "We're gonna take this retired term from sock dems and and pseudo progressives and be like everybody is bad because of it." It's just really funny to like identify something where it's like you don't eat fried lard for brekkies anymore. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> On to the woke side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. Anyways, British media is psychotic and uh, all support, all solidarity with the striking English rail workers and the tube workers who are striking in solidarity, which kicks ass. Yeah, and, love and to like, see those. We don't have a whole thing on it on the episode because it's just starting but probably next week after there's been about a week of disruptions we'll have like a whole story about it we just wanted to throw that out there that you know it's all solidarity with these workers their strike is extremely deserved and i hope they win everything they're fighting for hell yeah well speaking of just starting the episode stoppage everybody your favorite entirely listener supported uh, labor podcast thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on the patreon it really does go a long way if you're not in the discord already get in there it's free nothing is stopping you really uh, and if you are a patron and you don't have your stickers yet please message us on patreon and we will send you some they are union made and they look really nice if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or anywhere that you think it will help uh, tear the label off your friend's hot sauces and put a piece of paper with a five-star review for our show on it uh <laughs> we're gonna start by talking about the south korean trucker strike which we talked about on the last episode and then seemingly as soon as we wrapped up the recording it was over because they fucking won you love to see it folks that's right yeah it was so funny like i saw this story literally like i think the morning after we published the episode that yeah basically like at the beginning of last week 
after their strike had managed to cause, you know, um, basically has managed to shut down the South Korean economy. The, the government basically just gave in. They were just like, okay, fine, please stop. <laughs> uh, we're not going to cancel the minimum wages that you are very mad about. Um, and, and so, yeah, so they came to an agreement. I mean, we're going to have to see how it plays out. Like, like any of these sorts of things where there's an agreement between the government and the union, but yeah, now the, the the government has agreed that they will not allow the law that sets minimum, you know, safe rates, which as we described last week is since these truckers are, you know, classified as either independent contractors or owner operators, they they aren't classed as employees and so aren't normally given the minimum wage protections that normal employees would have just as we see so many times here. But they had previously won this minimum wage rate for specific workers in in co- container trucking at ports and cement truck drivers. And since those were going to exp- expire, that was, you know, the primary inspiration for the strike. And now, thanks to that one week strike, they will not the government is going to extend that so that the no, those safe rates continue indefinitely, and they've also agreed to begin the legal process on expanding fuel subsidies for freight haulers across the country because of obviously skyrocketing oil prices, which currently are borne by those truck drivers themselves. So, I mean, it, we always got to put the asterisk on anything like this where it's a it's a deal with the government that – Yes, it's possible that the government will betray the the workers and not and like fuck around with some of this. But I mean, they already demonstrated what they can do to the South Korean economy in one week. So I don't really know that that they're going to be the government's going to be rushing out to have that happen again. <laughs> well, in that yeah. one week, they managed to cost uh, companies one point five billion dollars yeah. and stop the flow of seventy percent of the country's exports, which is like. That's really, really massive, especially when South Korea is the the leading manufacturer of things like computer chips. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, just remember, looking at the images of the strike itself showed how powerful that union is. And I mean, I like I said, they made the government shit their pants. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm pretty sure that they're still cleaning up. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, absolutely. I mean. They, and and this didn't come without repression either. Like there were at least forty four drivers who were arrested during the strike, but that had no impact on their ability to continue to carry out the strike. They're just like, okay, fine, fuck you. <laughs> you agree to our demands, and we'll stop the strike. That's it. Like the, you can arrest however many people you want. So, I mean, this this rules. Uh, I think that this is. Also, one thing that I think like is important to take away from this for like U.S. listeners, or, like folks over here, is that like this is all happening under South Korea's newly elected president, who is really far right wing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the, the that election, which was very close, is probably going to have a lot of unfortunate ramifications for the South Korean working class. Like Yoon Suk-yeol, who is I'm pro- probably pronounced that wrong, but um, he's the the recently elected president. He's very conservative, very anti-worker in his policies. But even his administration, as ideologically against the workers as they are, as owned by the major corporations that you know are the ruling class in in South Korea, and as beholden to the U.S. Empire as any South Korean president's going to be. 
that in the face of this level of worker unity and worker power, they were still forced to bend to the workers' demands, which right. is like I think really important to understand because I I think that in some quarters of the like the labor movement, especially in the academic side, there's this idea that labor can only prosper under quote unquote friendly political leadership, and what they usually <laughs> mean by that is Democrats. It's just like. No. <laughs> well, quote unquote, yeah, friendly no. political leadership can also be like a huge fucking block to the progress for the working class or the union mm-hmm. movement in general. It just takes a different form. So it's like you, there's no there's no like president or prime minister of any given country that's going to make it impossible to unionize. It just makes you have to change tack whether you need to let workers know like uh, these people are not your friends in the case of like a Democrat style party or look, they admit they are your enemies in the case <laughs> right. of a Republican style party. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. The I, I'm just... I think that what we see is people being really mad at all of the, like, workers know that the right wing's not on their side, and I think that, for the most part, they're learning that the the centrists or the, the you know, the, the d- more democratic, the democratic party st- side are also not on their side. I mean, we're seeing that here in the United States, especially with Biden. But yeah, like, I, I, I think that this is... An illustration of, you know, we talked about this last week, but like, this is why we talk about the power that logistics workers have so much. And that doesn't, that's not just truckers. It's not just railway workers, although they have some of the most like per worker, like the amount of power they have, but it includes, you know, uh, like longshoremen, it includes warehouse workers, anybody mm-hmm. who's involved in that, you know, the, the, the new word that we hear all the time about, Oh, this is the actual cause of inflation. It's supply chains and all this <laughs> stuff, but anybody who's involved in that, like you have so much power and that's why we need to, you know, uh, help anybody in those industries who's trying to unionize or expand existing unions because they, this was done this strike with, I mean, we know a minimum of 8,000 people, maybe as much as 20,000 truckers, but like South Korea is something like, a, I think they're a top 10 global economy that was brought to its knees by that small of a workforce. And I think that that's something that should be really, is really important for people to understand when we're looking at how can we build the labor movement in ways where we can maximize the amount of power and leverage that the working class can exercise. Mm -hmm. And this strike is, I think, a perfect illustration of how we can do that. Yeah. Well, and in the next story that we're going to be doing a follow-up on at the XBO Logistics, uh, you know, like, basically just a shipping and and like storage and and whatever company uh where we had covered this on episode 89 the nlrb has finally actually ruled on their case saying that the 250 truck drivers that were there uh were are not allowed to be misclassified anymore as independent contractors and that they're allowed to unionize um i mean most likely with the teamsters because that's most of the logistics organizing in this country and you know i'm so fucking excited after watching labor notes just like really seeing the teamsters in a new light when previously i was like oh yeah teamsters they got their thing they also have their legacy of you know being associated with this kind of more you know uh underhanded corporate structure and then the but to see like sean o'brien up there 
fucking killing it being like and we will make the bosses cry we will <laughs> twist their arms into oblivion <laughs> uh, we can't do it as individuals we've got to do it as a team we got to make certain that when we're going out there and we're fighting fighting for contracts like we're going to do at united postal service and we're going to make certain that we negotiate the best agreement with zero concessions we are going to put that company on its knees if it needs to happen and that is going to invigorate the workforce that's really really good shit um but yeah i mean it took them like over over almost six months to actually get this ruling through so like the nlrb as we know a notoriously slow moving institution on wednesday the the 14th they ruled that the xpo drivers are in fact employees and not independent contractors and it grants them the uh, appropriate rights to legally bargain uh through collective action allowing them to do their union drive through the teamsters which they are actually going to be doing um this is actually the first time the board has ordered that an election for port truck drivers who are misclassified uh, are able to do this. And it opens the door for so many other uh, people in this industry because of how many misclassified workers we, I mean, we've talked about it so many times about people who are misclassified for like different laws, and whether it be like, uh, you know, independent contractors who are doing rideshare or, or anything like that. I mean, those are also logistics workers. And this technically, though more associated with shipping materials and storage of materials, could really extend with, with through these arguments to expand to basically get rid of independent contracting, though I don't want to be so optimistic because we are in America. <laughs> yeah, I mean the precedent that this sets is is really incredible, um, especially when you consider that like with the recent like intensification of misclassification of workers, you got to figure if you included that in like wage theft statistics, it would go from being the largest form of theft in the country to the largest form of theft in the country by like an order of magnitude. Oh uh, yeah. And then we we have words from Sean O'Brien himself uh, talking about this ruling where he said, quote, corrupt companies like XPO slash STG have long hidden behind the independent contractor model so they can rob workers in the shadows. This has to be called out and it must end on a global scale. This ruling may finally be the light that exposes such corruption and puts a stop to it. The Teamsters and other labor unions must remain vigilant on cracking down on corporate greed. This victory is another reminder that we can't give up the fight. It's about treating workers fairly paying them an honest wage and giving them the benefits they've earned so they can care for their families yeah i was i was almost hoping that you uh that you knew what sean o'brien sounds like he's got a really thick boston accent and i, was, I, I <laughs> do know what he sounds like i'm just not confident in my boston accent that's not one i practice a lot <laughs> yeah i mean i'm from the northeast and i still can't really I can't really do one, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a huge ruling. I, I mean, the fact that it, even if it doesn't extend to all of the people that it logically should extend to, this is even just including the workers at the port of LA is a big win, even if it's just to port drivers, because one of the things that I think gets left out about a lot of this is that. I think we're seeing a little bit of who gets misclassified and who is properly classified as an employee has not always, but sometimes a bit of a sort of, you know, a racial tinge to it because mm -hmm. like with these, these drivers at the port of LA are nearly like entirely Hispanic drivers. And 
Yet you then have workers in some other situations where maybe they've I have a like a whiter workforce that then get classified as employees because you know we, it, one of the million different ways that we see the ruling class use these sorts of divisions to pit workers against each other and so it's great to see the, you know the workers throwing their weight behind this and you and you know getting these folks into the position where they can now legally unionize and and the other thing that I really appreciated about O'Brien's remarks is is that it's not just like hooray for this ruling hooray for this thing it's like we need to carry this forward to its logical conclusion and actually have all workers who are misclassified be properly classified. Yeah, so I really said hope- on a global scale. I mean, those Hell are, yeah. that's pretty big aspirations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I hopefully we're going to see an aggressive push by like the legal arm at the Teamsters to really try and extend this everywhere that it makes sense, which I mean, at the very least would start with every single truck driver at every port in this country. Uh, and that could be a huge part of really reinforcing the all like the the existing power of unions like the Teamsters that are heavily involved in logistics to be able to carry out those sorts of powerful strikes that we were talking about like with the one in South Korea and in addition like it to this ruling like this is is certainly not like the only way that the Teamsters have been fighting back against like the way that these workers have been oppressed by XPO. Like they've filed multiple ULPs against the company, not just for misclassifying them, not just for refusing to bargain, but also because in addition to that bullshit, XPO has been retaliating against workers who testified at the NLRB case hearing about this all while threatening workers who were organizing. So, I mean, it, it's been good to see the Teamsters have these folks back, and and we have like a quote here from Eric Tate, who's the secretary treasurer of Teamsters Local 848, who will hopefully, and you know, once we have that election, be representing these drivers, who said, Teamsters don't quit. And these hardworking drivers didn't quit either. They've been fighting for their right for, to organize for years. Now they finally have a decision that honors the work they do, orders an election, and gives them the right to unionize, which is the only way working people in this country can protect their futures. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, there are not other ways for workers to to really gain rights except for through collective struggle. And and I'm I'm really glad that we're seeing a lot more of that rhetoric come out of these really important worker institutions like the Teamsters. Absolutely. And there's actually two through lines from this story into our next one. Boston and misclassification. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> here we have the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which has surprisingly done something really cool. Uh, we talked back on episode 65 uh, about an effort by gig companies like Uber and Lyft to spread copies of Prop 22 around, particularly one that they tried to uh, get passed in Massachusetts. And this ballot measure would, like the other Prop 22 clones, have permanently disempowered gig workers and prevented them from using labor law protections to organize in exchange for some weird token vague concessions that nobody was ever really clear on or could really make heads or tails of. And so on June 14th, uh, a big day in our notes today, uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that the ballot measure was illegal in the way that Uber and Lyft had written it and blocked it from being placed on the ballot. So... I mean, huge energy uh, and unions, uh, progressive groups and workers across the state, including the AFL-CIO, Carpenters Local 336, the Massachusetts Independent Drivers Guild, and many gig drivers themselves all lauded the ruling, and sensibly so. I mean, uh, once you have something like this on the books, it can be extremely difficult to get back off the books. Oh, Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Totally. Get, getting rid of ballot measures once they're passed is extremely difficult, which mm-hmm. is which is why like Uber and Lyft targeted this. And I, I don't have this in the notes, but I was because I was reading some of the stuff people were talking about well, the day that this happened, like people who were you know, more involved with this campaign, and a lot of people were being like, "Well, the this, the court just." ruled it down because of a technicality because it like, Oh, well it violates this clause where it has too much stuff in one ballot measure. The idea that like a ballot measure has to be something where it's like, if you want to put this on here, it's going to become a law. It has to be one thing. And if you want to do a bunch of different things, you have to have multiple different ballot questions. Mm-hmm. But when the people were looking into it, they're like, well, really what they were basically saying is that you can't try and squeeze, like bypass the state legislature to put this complicated, this ridiculous of a law into practice. And one of the things that they pointed out was that the, like what the ballot measure would have actually looked like on the actual, for for Massachusetts voters had this gone through, is a 12 page single spaced ballot question. That's just for this because they had to put all the information of what's in there and it's all in like legalese that no regular person could understand. And they're trying to be like, yeah, this is the normal way to pass a law. Like this, this is fine. Right. Well, so, I've voted on ballot measures before and usually it's a paragraph, right. sometimes just one sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but this again, because they're, they're trying, because they know that this law would not get passed mm-hmm. in Massachusetts legislature. So they figured, Hey, don't worry. We have a shitload of money. Uh, instead of spending the huge amount of money, it would take us to bribe a sufficient number of politicians. We could spend a little less money on that by just doing an ad blitz to lie to people like we right. did in California and convince them that this ballot measure would actually help workers. Cause I worked in California. Why don't we do it in this much smaller state? It, but, and so the, the, the Supreme court justices got to it and they were basically like, you can't, this is a 12 page <laughs> like law. You can't, you can't pass this as a ballot measure. That's ridiculous. <laughs> which, yeah, which is Hey, good. I mean, Rare I mean, moment of praise for a U.S. court on mm-hmm. on the Work Stoppage podcast, perhaps the first ever. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I th- I mean, it's what like one in thirty, you know, decisions <laughs> yeah. that go in favor of the workers. Uh, just because on occasion, like the companies do fuck up enough like this, like, right? That's that's about it. But yeah. we do have um, a quote from uh, an Uber driver who was the lead plaintiff, uh, Martin L. Cusa. Uh, who said, this is an enormous victory for drivers like me who only want the ability to work hard for fair wages. This ruling is a major step forward in our fight to be recognized as employees and compensated fairly. Like, hell yeah. This this is like actual worker being like, uh, I should not be misclassified. I am an employee. This is ridiculous. Yeah, well, and I think that those sorts of quotes, and because I mean, like, you know, I think people might just, be like, well, this is just, you know, one person and it's just one statement. But so much of the propaganda that Uber and Lyft, when they try to pass these sorts of clones, relies on the idea that this sort of law is what gig workers want. Because they always want to push this idea. Workers come to us because they love the flexibility and they don't want to lose that whether they would get if we had to follow labor law. <laughs> and so like having these direct testimonials from workers being like, no, <laughs> I don't want to be exploited by the company by this bullshit legal workaround is is I think so crucial because it's 
it's one of the best ways to punch through that sort of propaganda. Be like, oh, this is what gig workers want. Well, here's what an actual gig worker said. <laughs> so, right. um, and and we have another quote from uh, Wes McEnany, who is the campaign director for Massachusetts is not for sale, which was like a, a, a group that sprung up in response to the ballot measure saying millions of Massachusetts drivers, passengers, and taxpayers can rest easier knowing that this unconstitutional bid by big tech CEOs to manipulate Massachusetts law has been struck down by the Supreme Judicial Court. The ballot question was written not only as an attempt to reduce the rights of drivers, but also would have put the rights of passengers and the public at risk. The ballot question would have allowed these companies to avoid their most basic responsibilities to provide safe and reliable transportation service. We are excited to continue the work of our coalition to ensure that drivers, riders, and taxpayers are protected from the greed of big tech CEOs. And I think what's the whole reason I wanted to put that in there is that what I really appreciate about the people who have been fighting this measure is that I saw so many of them being like, this is awesome. This is great. Now, next step, we have to go it like now we have to go on like the long struggle to get Massachusetts labor law amended to correctly reclassify all these workers as employees, because like this l- legal ruling is good because it stops the prop 22 Mm -hmm. a clone from getting into Massachusetts ballots. But what is needed now is to get a new law that will correctly apply all the labor law protections that these workers should have to them so that, that Uber and Lyft aren't able to continue the level of exploitation they're currently doing. Yeah. Yeah. Labor can play the federalism game too. If you want to run around and try to pass a bunch of little prop 22 clones, we're going to run around and try to pass a bunch of little pro acts. See how you (laughs) like them apples. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this rocks. This is very good news for uh, gig workers in Massachusetts. And hopefully, you know, one of the things that I would hope that this would be able to spur is that by bringing gig workers together around this issue is that you can, like, make those connections that are necessary as, like, the sort of embryonic phase of getting an, a real union or like, like with groups like the Massachusetts independent drivers guild and, and others about actually bringing Uber and Lyft drivers together, even if they can't, you know, for the moment officially be a union, but maybe put together something like the, um, the New York taxi drivers association who we've talked about before where they right. can't technically officially be a union, but they can more or less work as one, even without the recognition. And, and so hopefully I'm hoping that this, by bringing people together in opposition can now start to be like the fruits of something where we actually start to see a real organization get built. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, and speaking of the fruits of opposition, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Uh, we actually are going to be doing a thing that we don't always do on this show, which is moving to Vic to big victories right in the middle of the episode, right near the beginning where we are celebrating Apple's first retail union in the United States. Like we, we talked about this last week and we've been talking about it a lot lately uh, at the Townsend, Maryland, Apple retail store where you know they were technically the second people to file because originally Atlanta had filed but they ended up pulling their election because of all of the union busting but thankfully of the things that that store learned and passed on to these Townsend workers in Maryland allowed them to win 65 to 33 
with 90% of the working uh, population voting. It is absolutely amazing to see the beginnings of this new wave of, of people like at REI and Verizon. I mean, Verizon's been organizing for a while, but to see their continued moves on organizing and, and to see that retail in, you know, cooperation with like service work like uh, like Starbucks are, are really seeing a rise in actually getting representation of the working class in their shops. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, as much as we love reporting on the constant Starbucks wins, and we do, and we're going to be talking about a bunch more of them at the end of the episode, seeing the wave of organizing that's going on right now spread to more and more employers is is one of the most inspiring parts of this because when you get your foot in the door with one of these places – that means you have like so many more chances to spread that to the rest of the stores. And so like, like, cause we talked about last week that CWA and workers United are working together now on Apple organizing campaigns. And this store is actually organized with the machinists. And so, yeah, they're probably going to be working at different stores, but just the fact that we now have one unionized Apple store that makes the second store like, not that it makes it easy, but it, it, it is such a point of inspiration to show workers at those stores. It's like, yes, Apple is one of the biggest companies in the world. They have incredible amounts of resources, but these workers in Maryland could do it. So why can't we? There's nothing that could that's stopping us potential workers at any other Apple store yeah, from well, doing the same thing. I mean, one of the big things that all of these huge labor drives have proved Amazon, um, Starbucks, you know, uh, Verizon, REI, whatever, is that like companies are structurally incapable and also union avoidance firms are structurally incapable of learning new tactics. Like how <laughs> yeah. long have we been in this wave of unionization? And I literally have not seen one novel idea that's not like a decades old play from the playbook from any of these firms or companies. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly just been like slightly updated versions of the exact same tactics right. they've been running for decades. Yeah. And or recycling really old tactics that yeah. maybe they stopped using because they're like, oh, you know what? We're going to bring out an oldie but baddie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But and I mean, to that point, like the the organic ability of so many of these workers to communicate with each other store to store, business to business, I mean, industry to industry, and share their knowledge of what the companies are doing to fight back against the union so that they can come up with their own ways to counter that has been really inspiring and, and played a direct role in this victory because mm-hmm. uh, workers at the store at Townsend said that while the union busting campaign that Apple ran, a classic Littler Mendelssohn joint, uh, though that did cause some supporters to waver, they were able to maintain their majority largely thanks to information that was shared with them from workers at other stores, including the folks at Atlanta, which, cause, and that's why I like we, when we were talking about, you know, we were certainly disappointed that the workers at the Cumberland mall store had to withdraw their petition. It sucks that it, you know, it's going to delay them by about six months and being able to file again but one of the things we wanted to emphasize was that it's like that doesn't mean the struggles over there and it even with the difficulties that were caused by the union busting campaign at that store 
we are now seeing the fruits of what was learned from that experience because like Eric Brown, who's one of the, the workers at the Towson store told the Washington post quote, they let us know what some of the talking points and the tactics were going to be. And we were able to let people know some of the things they may try end quote. And like, we've seen that so many places, especially like Starbucks is the classic example where like, yeah, you, your union busting drive, you, it may work the first time, Right. But if the workers are in communication with each other, store to store, branch to branch, that gives the workers a chance to learn from it and adapt. And to your point, John, we're clearly seeing that the rank and file workers, when they're empowered to run their own campaigns, that they can adapt so much faster and yeah. so much more creatively than the company can. Yeah, one of the things that I remember from the Labor Notes conference listening uh, to to one of the organizers speak was saying that you know like older unions sometimes are are apprehensive to to use some of these more radical tactics because you know they they don't necessarily you know for one they're trying to maintain their the power that they have but also you know they they feel like they have something that's working but then when they have all these new rank and file movements who are willing to be out there and do militant you know small strikes and things that. Um, we definitely are proponents of here. They are the things that actually lead to what we are hoping is actually a labor surge. Because though we keep calling it a labor surge, there's not actually real data saying that we are truly in a labor surge. We're seeing similar numbers to 2014 or other sorts of years. But when we see the actual ways in which people are organizing the ways in which these small unions are being more militant and using more militant tactics that's why we make this inference that we're that we're in a uh, the beginnings of a wave because the that is what's going to allow these bigger unions to make more bold uh organizing drives and use more bold tactics to actually empower these workers to do really awesome things and and really do a lot of organizing yeah, I think that's really astute that the the raw numbers themselves don't really carry all of the information because over the last couple of years, like you said, there's been a big qualitative or like a strategic shift in the way that labor organizing is happening and not just like a big uptick in interest or something as simple as that. Yeah. And I mean, this I mean, this win with Apple is I think doubly big not just because like now Apple has the chance to be like for this to spread and become a company wide thing, which, which is exactly what we hope happens. Mm -hmm. And that this becomes the next Starbucks. I hope we have a weekly segment coming up where we're reporting on Apple store wins. But additionally, I think the fact that this is happening at Apple is really encouraging for being able to expand this into a really broad, broader retail wave, because I, th I mean, Look, this is just my assessment. I don't have any data to back this up or anything, so it's not a scientific uh, <laughs> examination. But from the perspective of, I think, most retail workers, or at least like looking at the retail industry, a lot of the folks at Apple stores, I would think, would probably be in the under the impression, or at least the feeling, that it's like, if you're going to work in retail, this is one of the better jobs to have. This is one right. of the places that pays a little more, that gives a little more in the way of benefits. And so that's the sort of place where I, th I would think that you'd be like, well, okay, I don't know if I want to make waves because of like all the retail places. This is like the best one. I don't want to have to go work at, say, Family Dollar, one of those places that's more openly abusive of its employees. And yet these workers still got a two thirds majority and won their vote. So I, which is, I just think is another great 
way, place to show to people. Like if, if you work in retail anywhere, so you work at a Best Buy or you work at, or you work at a family dollar, I don't know, fuck family dollar. Like yeah. <laughs> it, that you can point to your coworkers and be like, yeah, I know this sort of organizing is scary. I don't want to lose my job either. But these folks are making maybe 50%, 70%, maybe double what we're making. And they still fought for a union and they won. Hell yeah, so, I'd love to see a Best Buy union. That would be fucking yeah, rad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's like similar to a thought that I was having the first time this Starbucks stuff kicked off, which is like if workers at McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and Taco Bell, you know, take a look at Starbucks and they're like, that's supposed to be the good food right. service job, fast, casual, fast food, whatever. Uh, and they need a union. We definitely need a union here right. at the fucking Golden Arches, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so after the win, you know, workers celebrated with their new comrades and the machinists, and they specifically said that they hope that their win is an inspiration to workers at other Apple stores and other retail stores across the country to unionize. Like Billy Jarbo, who's a worker organizer at the store, said, it just feels good to go into a new era of this kind of work. Hopefully it creates a spark and the other stores can use this momentum. And so Hell now yeah, they're going to be Billy Jarbo with the fucking rad name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So now, you know, they're going to be moving forward with the bargaining process for their first contract. And so workers at the store say that they intend to focus not just on pay and benefits, but also a voice in the workplace, control over schedules, which is, I think, one of the big common threads for retail that we don't mm -hmm. necessarily see it quite as high up on the list at a lot of other places because of the way retail workers get fucked around with schedules so much. And also, as with so many other places, because the fucking government won't handle it, so the workers have to do it themselves – uh, having a say over COVID safety protocols. So, yeah. but, and I mean, just for one last quote from another one of the workers at the store, uh, Chaya Barrett, who told Washington Post, for tonight, we celebrate, we relish in it. Then we will get together and figure out how we're going to get a negotiating committee. Even the people who voted no, we want them to be part of these negotiations. Also another fucking rad name. All these workers are really cool, like, <laughs> I had to take some advice for role playing that I'm going to be doing. It's like <laughs> nice combinations yeah. of, of of names. It's really cool. But yeah, well, awesome awesome work from these workers. Yeah, I mean, speaking of cool names, uh, we can dive right into the next story where Amazon has been retaliating against ALU organizers from JFK Eight, uh, as they, which culminated this week in firing yet another organizer. Pasquale Chioffi, which yeah. I mean, come on, 10 out of 10 yeah. name. <laughs> Extremely Italian name. Yeah. <laughs> Very Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, so so the company made claims that uh, Chioffi was fired for arguing with a manager, which, like, one isn't a fireable offense. ALU says they have uh, filed ULPs against Amazon for the firing, saying, quote, what they did to Pat is unjustifiable. It's clearly motivated by anti-union animus, and they're only going forward because they believe it's more cost-effective to fire him and deal with the backlash than it is to allow him to continue organizing during our contract campaign, which is a really great way of thinking about it because if, if you explain it like that to your fellow workers in, in a way that's true and thoughtful that way, it kind of gets them thinking like, hey, they only fired him because he was doing a really good job. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's kind of like we're winning, you know? <laughs> yeah, and if folks like we're following a lot of the media that came out in the aftermath of the JFK win. If you saw any of the interviews with like Chris Smalls, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I linked a million of them in the discord uh, and, but 
they mention uh, Chiaffi in there. I think he was called like Uncle Pat by a lot of the, <laughs> the folks at the at the warehouse, where he was somebody who was held up as an example of of kind of somebody who maybe folks would not have thought would have been involved with the Union Drive. Like he was a Trump supporter, and, but he and he originally was not a fan of the Union. But when he saw Chris Smalls get arrested for bringing food to workers during um, their drive. He, I, I think the quote was, he was like, Oh hell no, yeah. <laughs> we're not, de- we're not, we're not letting that happen. And he became one of the biggest supporters of the union. And I, I think they mentioned in, in a few of the articles that he may have t- turned like several hundred votes like by himself because he's, because he's one of those cases that I think you would be held up by like, for instance, um, somebody like Jane McAlevey's book, like uh, no shortcuts where one of the things that she emphasizes is in organ is finding those leaders within the workplace that other workers turn to and, and making it a, a priority to convince those folks that the union is a good idea. Because if you get somebody who people look to to be like, this is an example of how to you know work at the warehouse, and that person, especially if it's in the case where it's not somebody you would think would support the union, that can make a big difference. I also think it's a really big example of one of those you know, things that we say on the show so much that it's like <sighs> America uh, is full oh. of people with like really ex- esoteric con- consciousness mm-hmm. who have like some progressive ideas and some really fucking reactionary ones. And the way that we bring people together is through struggle. And this is like such a good example of that because you have somebody who you would never think is going to be a union supporter, but you actually go through that effort of, of being open to bringing in anybody in and they actually see that you're trying to make an effort to really improve the lives of people and that the company is fucking with you. And that changed that part of his consciousness to be like, Oh, actually unions are a good idea. And, and cause I think people sometimes get a bit doomerish about how many reactionaries there are in, in the U S and yeah, boy, we live in the heart of empire. There's a lot of them, but like, I think these examples are very important because it gets rid of that, like somewhat nihilistic idea that I think some people, I think understandably sometimes get, especially if you spend a lot of time on the internet Mm -hmm. that like, this country's too right wing. We're never going to be able to, to do this, but it's like, you've seen the ALU. This is like, this is not, the a craft union from 1910 where it's 85 90 95 percent white dudes like this is an extremely diverse union with a diverse leadership that is like led by partially by communists yeah i was literally about to say i thought the quote that you were gonna be like yeah you know the quote that we say here unions are the school of communism well yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean that too Uh, i mean i don't know that they got pat all the way there yet but like (laughs) i'm sure they're working on it but so This retaliation sucks. It's awful, and that's why we have to keep supporting the ALU. But like, I do think that that his case is very illustrative of how like important it is not to write off like the possibility of organizing coworkers. I mean, if if you have somebody who's just an open bigot, okay, sure. But like, uh, there's a lot of people who have some weird reactionary ideas because we're steeped in bourgeois ideology from the fucking ideological state apparatus bombarding us with bullshit 24-7. And it's going to take more than one five-minute conversation to turn a lot of people. But if you fight alongside them to actually improve their material conditions, 
you can move people. And I, I think that's an illustration of that. Well, and also like, I think there's this weird misconception that like, if somebody is like a Democrat or they like Biden or the Clintons instead of Trump, that they're somehow going to be like more right. sympathetic to the union. And it's like, maybe on aggregate, there is like an ever so slight difference there. But in my experience in my lifetime, it's pretty much the same. They're all liberals. They're just varying degrees of like, you know, mm-hmm. eso- having esoteric beliefs or being various kinds of bigoted or whatever, but they're all fucking liberals. Uh, every single one, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but uh, so, I mean, another thing that when Liz, uh, like I'm going to keep talking about labor notes. I mean, Chris Smalls kept uh, was was talking about how he wants people to come out and uh, join them for the hearings about the uh, actual recognition of Amazon's union. Uh, and Amazon's legal team has been bringing out some of the fucking wildest objections to to this uh, case, including just like people are reporting on it. Uh, oh, yeah. Like there, there are there were people who who talked during the union uh, busting meetings. Uh, <laughs> like just some of the wildest shit w- that we've seen as as like. I don't know, arguments against recognizing the union that they clearly won? Yeah, it it's a bunch of bullshit. I was watching some of the, like, I logged into the hearing today and was watching some of it, and it's, it is the weakest shit in the fucking world. Like, some of the objections that people talked about from the hearings last week, and these are ongoing, uh, where were that there was media outside the voting tents <laughs> interviewing workers after they voted, which I'm like, Boo-hoo. welcome Welcome to an election yeah. ever. <laughs> like that just, that's not illegal. That's normal. Um, pr- they had procedural complaints about the signing of union cards, which they never raised an objection to during the drive, but only raised as an objection after they lost. Which I'm just like, okay, this is just sour grapes. Like if you had a real a real substantive complaint here, you would have made it before the union the election in order to disrupt it. Mm-hmm. They complain one that was amazing. They complained that the NLRB purposefully took too long resolving the dozens of ULPs that were filed against Amazon in order to make them look bad by how many open ULPs there were. It's like, my brothers in Christ, you committed the labor violations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and per- not only perhaps that, don't do that next time. <laughs> you're also the reason that the NLRB has extreme funding cuts because historically all of the conservatives and and, and business interests have been trying to cut funding to the NLRB so that to weaken workers' rights. I mean, not that the Democrats don't also do that, but like also that mostly the people who are yeah. deep, deep, deep in business interests have been underfunding this to the point where, like earlier, it took them six months to finish a fucking uh, like complaint. Yeah, and yeah. then well, to, and, 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 and to, historically, the NLRB has been like so unwilling to actually like rule on ULPs in favor of the workers that in many of these cases, I'm sure leaving those ULPs open ended was basically a favor to the company. <laughs> a hundred, oh, a hundred percent. And then, Always. like today, they were the whole thing was complaining about oh, the ALU disrupted a captive audience meeting. I'm like, well. Those captive audience meetings are probably illegal, so right. I don't really know if if that's the angle you want to take. And then it turned out the person they were using as their primary witness was a manager who had repeatedly called the ALU a bunch of thugs, <laughs> which I'm like, that's your star witness? 
okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's the whole thing is a shit show. But I mean, one like part of the reason that we wanted to bring it up is that because like while Amazon's objections are are clearly nonsense, and any even slightly un, not less biased observer would be like, yeah, you, they have no case whatsoever. We always have to worry because it's, you know, it's the United States legal system. So it's always possible that they could find a sympathetic judge who's just going to be like, nah, whatever, fuck this, fuck the workers, I'm throwing this election out. So, mm-hmm. uh, and one thing though that, uh, I mean, Chris Smalls, when he was speaking at Labor Notes this weekend, did ask people, you know, to try and have as many people show up to the hearing just as sort of a pressure tactic as possible. And it is a public hearing. So I'll include the link in the show notes to this so that anybody who you know during the day it's because it's it's in arizona so it's it's in mountain time um but they're starting at like 8 a.m their time and going for most of the day so and it's probably going to be going for a real long time because amazon has a whole bunch of stupid nonsense they want to roll out there and so anybody who has the ability to even just like bring up the hearing and you don't even have to listen to it just throw it on in the background so that there's more people in the hearing room uh, just to apply that level of pressure, that was something that, you know, the, the ALU is asking for support on. And so figured we'd encourage that. Hell yeah. But uh, moving on to our next victory of the week to discuss, we've got University of Washington researchers uh, successfully unionized. Uh, I think this was actually a couple of weeks ago uh, where... And so this is yet another win for the UAW who have continued their surge in organizing in higher education. Uh, and this was a overwhelming victory in this election. Uh, 606 to 104. Wow. <laughs> Which is like ridiculous. It's like an 80%, 80, 90% win. And, and, and also like the kind of margin that I feel like I saw a lot less often before all of the Starbucks stuff kicked off, right? Like, is yeah. it just me or did union elections used to be like really close with a lot more losses? And then all of a sudden this year, it's just like, there's unanimous votes. There's, you know, 80, 20 majority votes all over the fucking place. Yeah. I think it's a combination like in Starbucks where you have just the more effective rank and file led campaign te- right. techniques. This one, I think, is just one of those cases where a couple of decades ago, like back in even in the 90s, even after you've already started Labor's retreat, this would have probably been a voluntary recognition campaign. But because even in the public sector, so many places have just been like, no, we're going to we're going to drag this out and throw as many stupid legal obstacles in the way as possible, even in a case we know we're going to lose. Because like... This is a bargaining unit of uh, 1,450 workers across the University of Washington system who will now be uh, unionized with local 4121, who also represents the the school's union of student and postdoctoral employees. And these workers had asked for voluntary recognition back in December when they presented the administrators with an overwhelming majority of signed cards. But the university refused. They challenged a bunch of the eligibility. They they did all this sort of legal bullshit that forced the election to wait six months to actually happen. And then yet again, they're like, hey, look, you know how we said we had most of the teachers? Hey, we weren't lying. <laughs> and so like we have this quote from Ivan Cruz, who's a researcher at 
the University of Seattle campus who said, honestly, I think emotions among research scientists and engineers are mixed. We're thrilled, of course, with the strong result from the vote, but also frustrated that nearly six months have passed since a majority said we wanted a union. We keep seeing this at UW. A group of workers wants to unionize, and then the administration makes all these challenges that stall the process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we see this all the time from, from colleges that, you know, supposedly... You know, the Marxist institutions that are eroding right. the fabric of society right. uh, continue to union bust constantly. Seems uh, yeah. seems a little sus to me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it may have something to do with the corporatization of education in this country. It may have to do with the overall uh, reactionary stance that is the ideologically dominant position here. Uh, who knows? But one of the ways that uh, it's getting fought back against is that with this, the UAW now represents uh, well over 100,000 members at more than 40 colleges and universities, uh, which is becoming a rather significant portion of their membership, who will play a crucial role in the upcoming union convention, where these workers will, for the first time, have the opportunity to directly elect their union leadership. So hopefully we will continue to see, uh, you know, rank and file oriented leadership rise to positions of prominence in many of the large unions across the country. Hell yeah. Yeah, like that was one of the things that I just from, cause I didn't necessarily expect to learn that bit from reading this story, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize that the academic part of like the UAW was already at like a hundred thousand workers. Like that's a big portion of the UAW's membership. And I know that it, several of the locals that are like specifically focused on academic organizing were some of the like most lopsided in favor of the one member one vote campaign so Mm. hopefully that's you know a bellwether for the sort of like impact that we'll be able to see at the upcoming union convention oh my gosh what i want to see is pattern bargaining from all of these people and see (laughs) all of these universities go on strike at the same time that would (laughs) be yeah cool for sure And so, you know, now the workers are beginning the process of surveying union members on what the folks want when they bargain for their first contract. And, you know, the university says they'll bargain in good faith, but they also drug this process out for really seven months at this point. So who knows uh, the worker, but these researchers, the things that they're primarily focused on are wages, of course. But also, like, housing affordability and childcare benefits. You know, these are the sorts of things that we heard specifically when we were talking about the student workers at Columbia, where, like, these workers, of course, they get their stipend to live, and, and but, like, the soaring cost of living across the country and without, you know, with, before they, when they didn't have a union and didn't have a sort of cost of living adjustment, that's all borne on them and has made it very difficult for these workers to be able to live, you know, in the Seattle area near these campuses where rent on its own is is through the fucking roof so yeah all up and down the entire west coast and then you know we hear from one of the worker we hear from one of the workers herself cara marcario i hope i'm saying that somewhat correctly uh who is a researcher at the seattle campus said quote uw researchers worked so hard for this day and are so excited that we finally have our union now we're ready to get to work and deal with real issues that have been neglected for far too long wages equity stability and transparency in our 
appointments. We have a lot to do and look forward to making UW an even better place to do our research by securing a strong contract. And that transparency in our appointments thing uh, sounds like it's pretty critical to me. I'm just guessing, but there's probably a relatively opaque system by which researchers are given different research projects or sent to different teams. And I have to imagine that can be quite maddening if you are like a researcher who's trying to specialize in something and keeps getting dragged back into other general projects in the field. Yeah, or or like, you know, certain levels of nepotism that can be in certain in levels mm-hmm. of these institutions where, you know, alumni get preferences and and or yeah, are, children of wealthy parents who donate right. to the university might be given more prestigious projects to work on, etc. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if that's the case here, but it's not uncommon to happen here in the United States mm-hmm. or I'm guessing many other places in the world. So, yeah, you're right. The transparency call is is really really super important. Important. But yeah, so like congratulations to these workers. Real excited to see another big block of academic folks organized with the UAW. But for our uh, next to last story on this episode, we're moving to uh, down into South America to talk about a big national strike in Ecuador that's been going on that I have really not been seeing much of any coverage outside of like Telesur and uh, Kwasichan News, who I also probably cannot pronounce right. But like... So in Ecuador, starting last week on Monday, June 13th, workers in Ecuador began a series of countrywide protest actions against the anti-worker neoliberal policies of the government there of Guillermo Lasso, who is a right-wing banker who just barely squeaked into office last year during their uh, um, presidential elections. And so farmers and workers have been flooding the capital of Quito and setting up roadblocks, protests, demonstrations, burning tires and stuff, you know, all the, all the good sorts of stuff you see from a working class uprising, uh, specifically against really the, the crushing cost of living on, on people right now during, you know, soaring inflation and, and just the crises that are going on throughout the world that are affecting everybody. And one of the things that I think is really important about this strike is that it's being led and coordinated by indigenous folks in Ecuador, specifically the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, or uh, CONAI, uh, uh, C-O-N-A-I-E, or A, yeah, A-I-E. Um, and so the confederation has has been actually very specific. Like, they're not just going out and saying, down with lasso, down with neoliberalism, which would be a completely, you know, that would be a good set of demands. But they've actually said, no, we have a 10-point like program more or less about exactly what they're looking for. And what those things are, are first a fuel price reduction and freeze and no more fuel price hikes. And and included in that is subsidies for sectors that need it most like peasants, the transport sector and fishing. Number two, economic relief for the more than 4 million families and a moratorium of at least one year and a renegotiation of debts with a reduction of interest rates in the financial system and no asset seizures to pay debts. Uh, number three, fair prices for farm products, milk, rice, bananas, onions, fertilizers, potatoes, all, all that stuff. And and also no to a collection of royalty on flowers so that millions of peasants, small and medium-sized producers can have a guaranteed livelihood and continue producing, which that was something that I learned through the process of this. Cut flowers are actually one of the single biggest exports in um, Ecuador. It's a multi-billion dollar industry there. So like putting a a royalty on that cuts into the livelihoods of a lot of peasants in Ecuador. So Wow. Yeah, like, I mean that's 
when when you think of countries whose economies are largely made up of flowers, you mostly think of the Netherlands and not like <laughs> right. Ecuador. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. That's just racism. <laughs> it, yeah. it is, though. <laughs> it's funny, I guess, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, number four, employment and labor rights, policies and public investment to c- curb labor precariousness and ensure the sustainability of the economy. Number five, a moratorium on the expansion of mining and oil extraction, an audit and full reparations for the environmental impacts and for the protection of territories, water, and ecosystems. Uh, Number six, respect for the 21 collective rights. This is specifically the rights of indigenous folks, so intercultural bilingual education, indigenous justice, um, then the rights of self-determination for indigenous peoples. Uh, number six, stop the privatization of strategic sectors, which belong to the Ecuadorian people, which include national banks, hydroelectric plants, highways, healthcare sector, then ending I, speculation and abusive just, pricing I, on staple products. Yeah. I just want to be they're They're privatizing the highways. Uh-huh. They're, they're yeah. making private roadways. And, the the and BJP also, is trying to do that. In India too, mm-hmm. hydro hydroelectric electric plants—the literal mm-hmm. like most expensive infrastructure projects that exist that have been built by the wealth of the of the people—then be privatized, most likely in the way that other things are privatized, basically pennies on the dollar to whoever mm-hmm. whatever rich person gets to it first. Holy shit! That's I uh, yeah. I'm glad they're fighting against that shit. Then uh, number nine, uh, addressing health and education. So uh, updating the budget to uh, actually pay the healthcare workers of Ecuador to end the hospital shortages, um, to and then to guarantee youth access to higher education and improve the infrastructure and education across the country. And then lastly, security and effective public policies to curb the upsurge of violence, hired killings, kidnapping, and organized crime against the indigenous and poor populations of the country. And so this is a pretty... I mean, it's it's not necessarily, you know, openly like calling for a communist revolution, but it's that's a pretty radical pro worker program, uh, and and I think that this is a really important movement, and especially because it, it's not just like they showed up on Monday and did these protests and got some repression and went home. They've been going out there every day for now over a week, shutting down roads, shutting down entryway into the, the capital. Like they, uh, at one point I think actually caused a series of severe delays to the airport because of all the places that Hell they had yeah. blockaded. Well, they've been, and it's ex- not, no bad. Uh, they've been experiencing really broad support from the community as well. So you have like farmers, transport workers, health workers, student movements, feminist groups, and labor unions all out there. And then on Wednesday, the truckers union joined in and blockaded the roads as well. So yeah. they have roads blocked in 12 provinces, which is like, that's crazy. That's, that's a really, I mean, like it's given me South Korea vibes a little bit, like we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this mobilization is massive. It's it's also brought in the teachers unions. It's and it it carries a lot of echoes of a similar strike movement slash uprising that happened in 2019 against the policies of Lenin Moreno, one of the worst named uh, world leaders ever, um, <laughs> because he was a very right wing president who betrayed the Ecuadorian people. Um, but 
And during those protests, he was actually forced to flee the Capitol at one point because the protesters occupied the National Assembly. And it took severe police repression during which 11 workers were killed in order to end those protests. And Lasso has largely maintained similar policies to the Moreno government with largely similar results amongst popular opinion. Like his approval rating dipped to 17%, even lower than Joe Brandon's in the United States. Like, and that's pretty bad. Like yeah. 80% of people in Ecuador said that the, the administration's policies are bad or very bad. <laughs> that is a huge percentage of people who don't like this guy and, and their, yeah. and, their, and his policies. Yeah. And so once again, we are unfortunately seeing a lot of repression from the police against these strikers. Uh, not so far that as I can see, not quite, you know, the level of extreme violence we saw during the like Colombian uprisings last year, but there's been a constant use of tear gas, mobile squadrons of police on motorcycles where they like zoom into a protest, beat the shit out of people with clubs and then kind of zoom off. Because one of the things that's been interesting to me, at least in seeing some of the videos that have been coming out of these protests is that there have been so many people involved that the police have had a really hard time trying to like, cause in the U S the most common tactic is you kettle people like mm-hmm. you surround them with the police you back them into an area you tear gas the shit out of them beat the beat them and arrest as many people as you can but there have been so many people in the streets that it almost seems like like the police don't necessarily have the numbers to be able to do that <laughs> so they're just firing tear gas at them then you know driving in with these basically attack squads on dirt bikes beating people up and then riding away because they're like, well, we, we can't stay here cause we'll get surrounded. And like, I don't just say that is because a, a few of these pictures, because one of the things that happened at, uh, at the end of the first day of the protests on Monday was the police. I actually think this was like special, a special forces unit of their police arrested the leader of the indigenous confederation. That's coordinating the protests, uh, Leonidas Isa who was arrested early Tuesday morning and imprisoned for directing the protest, but thousands of protesters rapidly mobilized to the prison they were keeping him at, uh, the Latacunga prison, and basically forced the government to release him just through, you know, being like, we are all here, we are surrounding the prison, and we are not leaving until you release our leader. Hell yeah, I I fucking love that. And I mean, honestly, that sort of pressure really does work. I mean, I've been in protests where leaders have been arrested and like going to the to the to the station where they're holding people is they're going to try to try to wait you out if you don't have enough people. But even if you have a, a strong enough contingent, you will hurry them along and you will get your people free. Yeah. And so like immediately basically that immediately when he was released like uh isa had a press conference to basically explain like why what the people are fighting for and why they're not going to stop saying and he was directing this directly to the president saying you are worried about the rate of profit we are not worried about the rate of profit we are worried about our economic survival we can't take any more of this crisis Hell yeah, yeah. my man said the tendency of the rate of profit to be dumb (laughs) as hell. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, yeah, and he said that they will continue the strike mobilization until the government addresses the 10 demands, and they have continued to have huge protests every day. I mean, I saw a story today from Telesur where, like, their like defense ministry was like uh, the, the, the military stands ready to protect democracy, and it's like 
Yo. I'm pretty sure the people in the streets are the ones doing democracy, my Right, guy. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, what is it that the that they chant in the streets? Uh, this, this is, is what, what democracy, democracy looks, looks like. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, so shit. I, this, is a, this is a big movement. I think it's... It has the potential to be extremely consequential, and it's one that I, I really haven't seen anybody covering. And so I, I just really wanted to talk about it on here because it's, it's a workers' movement. It's a peasants' movement. It's led by militant, like, clearly pretty radical indigenous folks. And so I think it's, you know, this movement deserves all our support. And so, like, all eyes on Ecuador, really. Hell yeah. And then speaking of hell yeah, let's move to <laughs> our right. every week Hell yeah, statement. Uh, it's a segment on Starbucks. <laughs> Although uh, we have to start with some shitty stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, as we have constantly covered on this, Starbucks has been doing immense union busting. I mean, there have been multiple reports of management threatening workers with loss of gender-affirming care if they unionize. Basically, the the classic threats uh, of yo you you won't get something better in fact you're gonna get something worse uh and what what they're really saying is we're going to try to take your rights away if you have if you want to have any say in anything and you know while starbucks claims it wants to help you know trans employees by improving the fund to allow workers like in states where the where these anti-trans laws that have been going through i mean like really that it's fucking wild the amount of repression that's been going on in in these cases though like there is uh one exception in alabama where there was because i we were talking earlier about the about the the judges um and and how one in 30 there is a good case there is um actually one of the uh alabama courts did strike down their anti-trans law as sex discrimination which was oh, which pretty good. cool yeah um and but anyway they're they're now using like the the idea that there's a, a fascist state repression of trans people to be like we're the only ones who can protect you so don't protect yeah. yourselves Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You should rely on Howard Schultz, the guy who floated running for president, and everybody, including the Democrats, hated him so much they all told him not to do it. That's who's going <laughs> to save you from the federal government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's been wild the amount of repression that's been going on. I mean, like it's literally like a a, a dictate from the higher management to all of the the. Um, you know the managers that they're having trouble keeping on the on the union busting line. It's also very right. funny that I've seen uh, to to really bring out these incredibly abusive lines that are not only anti worker but but just like straight up like abuses of the people that they are claiming to protect. They're like, um, hey. What if we just took all of your your health care away? I mean, wouldn't you be the bad guy? And just like fuck off! I that shit pisses me off to, to no end. Well, yeah, and the fact that they're this is such a cynical move. It's really disgusting. Like the way they're openly exploiting this rise in fascist attacks on trans people to try and co- use that to break unions. Like, and and the fact that. In addition to the general threats 
that we've heard heard about. You know, the whole like, oh, we've got all this healthcare. If you get a new you, if you get a union, you start from square one. Who knows if you'll keep all this stuff? But they've been like now explicitly targeting trans employees. Like there was a, one worker from an Oklahoma store, Naya Kremen, said, "quote I think the company realizes that we as trans partners feel particularly vulnerable at this time. I think that in some cases they are willing to take advantage of that." And described how in a one-on-one meeting with her manager that the manager told her that she could use benefits if the store unionized and said, quote, I know specifically you have used the trans health care benefits, end quote. Mm, yeah. For one, I don't know why managers are getting access to people's private medical information. Well, I do know mm. why, because they're a fucking terrible company. But I remember working at Starbucks, and I've mentioned this on the show before, feeling incredibly trapped to be in a fucking awful situation that is created by the company and then also to be like, this is one of the only places that I can get the kind of care that I need uh, is is literally cornering people who are on the, the margins of society and saying, oh, what if something happened to you? Yeah, it's 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 this is kind of, I mean, really, it's kind of like classic abuser tactics. It's it's incredibly fucked up. And. The other thing is, is that like, this is not just like a one-off event. This exact same sort of threat has happened to workers in Pittsburgh, uh, who said that managers in a meeting told her that they knew she planned on seeking gender affirming care. And that if she unionized, she could lose access to that care. Uh, the, the NLRB even issued a complaint against Starbucks for the same sorts of threats at a store in Kansas. So this is all over. This is not just like a one-off case of one shitty manager, which would be bad enough. Like, this is clearly basically following directives from Starbucks corporate that this is a, an angle that they should try because like this isn't going to just come up organically the fact that it's happening in Kansas it's happening in Pittsburgh it's happening in Oklahoma mm-hmm. like that's a corporate directive and that's insanely fucked up and so like you know the union has continued to file ULPs against Starbucks and meanwhile, Starbucks continues their weird get attempted to gaslight people and say that there isn't even an anti-union campaign at all. Yeah, so. I, I, I mean, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the general manager wasn't the same one who came in and fired me, the one in Pittsburgh, because that was she was fucking terrible and just like not with zero cares about any of the needs of people and and even i i know that the manager at the store that i was working at was has already been fired or whatever for whatever other reason but they really they put up with insane amounts of transphobia including like dead naming on the floor misgendering constantly and they're always like oh no we'll handle it and they're like uh, i warned them i gave them a stern wagon of the finger and right. then and then you know the only people who get written up are are trans people themselves yeah but as with so many of these tactics no matter how low the company sinks no matter how depraved their union busting becomes, the workers continue to turn their union busting tactics against them, which kicks ass because we have one final quote from uh, Nea Kremen who told Bloomberg that the threats have really only underlined how important the union is, saying, we feel powerless on a state level. Unionizing our store at least gives us something small to grab onto, that we can make our store a safe place. We deserve access to healthcare. We deserve to be paid enough not to just survive, but also to transition, to love, to thrive. When we fight to make the workplace better for trans people, we help all workers. 
Hell yeah. Oh my gosh. I was just talking to someone earlier about how, you know, giving people more rights, especially when they're rights that maybe you didn't think you needed, they definitely benefit everyone. Like, Mm -hmm. I I was just talking about uh, even just, uh, like, I guess... I, subtitles is an easy one where it's like oh subtitles are for people who who are like hearing impaired or whatever but it's also really great for people who have other sorts of needs or even just like reading the dialogue or how a ramp can not only be helpful to people in wheelchairs but maybe someone with a stroller or people who maybe just got injured and need and are on crutches and you didn't even know that you would need that you know like there are all sorts of accommodations that have unforeseen benefits and when we bring up the the marginalized people we actually actually serve all people and not not only by including more people and diversity into our society and you know just create a more inclusive and friendly community like literally there are material benefits to each of us as individuals when we support people as a collective yeah absolutely 100 percent well everybody likes to talk about the secondary benefits of like space research but what about the secondary benefits of like Working on infrastructure, <laughs> like healthcare yeah. and accessibility and all of that stuff, you know, like you don't need to, you don't need to put a man on Mars to like realize that ramps are helpful. Hell yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, I've sort of retooled the election section of this. Uh, so we're not going to go on through the vote count of every store because there's so many of them. This segment starts becoming really long. If w- one of our listeners, if we don't mention your specific store and it won and you want a shout out, please just message us. I'll happily throw a direct uh, reference to it in our next episode. But so getting into the union elections over the last couple of weeks, there have been a few losses, which is unfortunate, like Minneapolis, Grand Blanc, Michigan, and uh, Glen Allen, Virginia, are the three losses that I could find over the last two weeks, which is unfortunate. It sucks that the that the union elections lost those stores, but that's three, <laughs> and there have been, and this has actually been kind of a slow week for stores, but on Monday, we got another victory in Colorado as workers at the third and Columbine store joined the union. Then on Tuesday, on June 14th, where we had so many other events, there were union wins in Chicago, St. Louis, Oklahoma City, and San Antonio, Texas, and the Chicago and OKC wins were by a combined vote of 29 to 2, so about as close to unanimity as you can get on Thursday there were wins in Buffalo New York in another Buffalo store uh, Appleton Wisconsin two stores in Pittsburgh one of which the east side location was a unanimous 10 to nothing win hell yeah then uh, workers won at the Starbucks in Disneyland and I think this is the single biggest regular Starbucks that we've seen because the vote there was 26 to 15. That's a lot of Starbucks work. 41 people work at that Starbucks? <laughs> no, John. 41 people voted in the election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Damn. And so that made the union five for five on Thursday and brought Buffalo to a total of nine union stores and Pittsburgh to a total of seven. That's wild that Pittsburgh has seven unionized stores because if memory serves, there are only 11 Starbucks locations in like Metro Pittsburgh. Hell yeah. So seven down, four to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then on Friday, workers won elections in uh, St. Louis. So that's a second win in St. Louis and a win. And that's the St. Louis one was a unanimous 17 to nothing win. Nice. And also a win in Pittsfield, Michigan. 
Um, and then today on the 21st, the day that we are recording this, workers at the Williamsburg Reserve in Brooklyn voted unanimously 10 to nothing to unionize and became the 160th unionized Starbucks, bringing them to a record of 160 to 22, which is, I believe, an 88% win rate. That's insane. And also, like, these elections are happening faster and faster, and the wins are coming in faster and faster. And it just reminds me, you ever play Cookie Clicker? Where you start by <laughs> making just a few cookies, and then you spend your cookies on stuff that makes more cookies, and pretty yeah, soon the whole thing... games are are fun but awful. Yeah, awful. But it spirals out of control, <laughs> and uh, but in a good way. And that's what I'm seeing here. It's like you know, if, if every 160 stores that you have unionized, like you you just get a bonus to the rate of unionization in all of the surrounding stores. I guess that's like a solidarity upgrade or something like that. If you want to complete yeah. that category. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, as we're making, uh, you know, comparisons in a funny way, we can do that uh, in our classic segment, yeah. the meme review. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I mean, coming right out of the Starbucks segment, why not start with a Starbucks <laughs> meme? So I'm not actually sure. I've seen this format before where it's like, I, I don't know what cartoon this is from, but it's, it's a two-panel and it's like the general format that I've seen is the first one is like, wait, when do I get to win? And the bottom panel is like, that's the that's the neat part. You don't. Right, right. Or the one I've seen where it's like uh, there's a guy who obviously works in a kitchen in the first panel and he's like, I don't smoke. When do I get a break? And his boss yeah. is like, that's yeah. the neat part. You don't. <laughs> yeah. So in the top panel, we've got the, the normal person is replaced with a, a picture of Howard Schultz saying, I will never engage with a union. And in the bottom, you've got the union logo, the Starbucks Workers United logo. And it's like, that's the neat part. You don't have a choice. <laughs> that's right. And honestly, they are, are calling on people, I think even people who aren't in the union, uh, to to sign the the yes. no contract no coffee pledge, which uh, we will also include in the in in the show notes. So go ahead and sign that and be like, hey, when the when the uh, strike inevitably happens for the Starbucks workers to get their contract, uh, be prepared to go out there and show solidarity at your local Starbucks and uh, no coffee, no contract. Yeah, that's right. And so <laughs> our next one isn't really a meme. It's, it's, it's just a tweet, but it's, it, <laughs> I, after watching Labor Notes this weekend, it was very much a vibe. So this is uh, from somebody named Lena Ruth Solo who said, I fucking love when everyone is like, this is a movement about love. And then a teamster is like, tell the bosses we will tear them limb from limb and feast on their <laughs> remains. <laughs> you got to love the really militant unions who really aren't afraid to fucking give it to. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite things about, about the new rank and file movement that is really reminiscent of early union movements being like, we will fight. And by fight, we mean fight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, bring it. We the 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 movement. Like, so look, we've got we've got Starbucks is unionizing. We've got Apple is unionizing. We've got rank and file stuff going on. We've got communists involved in the labor movement again. You know what? What the next step is? We're bringing back union thugs, everybody. That's Hell right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and this pork next one pie is... hats. <laughs> sure, why not? It's better than a fedora. All right, true enough. Yeah. 
Uh, this next one is just uh, someone who posted, uh, I present you a real actual resume my office has received. And it's it's the, all right, so it's the person who's being written to, uh, Jen and Tonic, or Jennifer in this message, from a, a Hotmail email. And the whole resume is two lines, work experience, IDK. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I love this. This is massive energy. Fantastic. It's <laughs> what what's my work experience? I don't you want me to write that? What? <laughs> well, I just I, the, to me the whole thing is like you said you needed help. <laughs> like, I'm offering to help. What more do you want? <laughs> Why do I got to write a whole essay about it? Right. <laughs> yeah. But then the next one is my favorite that I saw this week, which uh was just says, I tip 50% on terrible service because I think it's cool to hate your job and suck at it. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell Big fucking energy. yeah. Love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Before my, my grandma passed away, we would try to, you know, go out to a lot of dinners with her. And for in- her entire life, she always like insisted that 20% was the maximum you should tip, like for absolutely incredible service. And so there's a long history in my family of us delegating a person to run back in and put more money on the table and pretend <laughs> to go to the bathroom or something before we leave. <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. Uh, and then we got and a classic. So- yeah, our last one, we got yet another. I've just been really uh, kind of on a kick of these like old IWW, old CPUSA, mm-hmm. like these 1930s era uh, labor memes. And this one, I just love the visual of it where you've got these two giant hands, one holding a couple pieces of paper and one holding up this little like fat, bald, rich guy. And if you weren't sure, he's conveniently labeled bosses Mm -hmm. on his vest. (laughs) And the two arms are labeled, one's organized and the other one's working class. And the the paper that they're holding the boss up to read says, labor creates all wealth. All wealth must go to labor. Hell. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah. And I I also kind of like that the the angle it's drawn from makes it look like a hands-only YouTube channel. Like you're about to hear like, hello, this is the lockpicking lawyer, and I've got something really awful for you today. It's a capitalist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And on that note, we will be ending the episode for today. We want to thank you all for listening. You know, go ahead and share this around. We need to be getting all this news out there so that people end up showing up to the ALU's you know, uh, hearings so that people sign the, the no coffee, no contract pledge. And, you know, also so they can just learn a little bit about class solidarity. Uh, if you want to support us more, you can go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and throw us five bucks a month. You can get stickers. You get all of our overtime episodes. You get a bunch of really cool uh, different pieces of content. Join the Discord. It's free. You know, there's lots of different things. There's lots of people talking about different things and learning, organization. Uh, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at work stoppage pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity, everyone.